interesting and memorable professors when I was attending that wonderful land-grant-based institution known as Prairie View A&M University. Yes, I did. I had one professor in engineering physics that told us after the third week, if we got a 90 or higher on any one of these tests after week three, we could skip the rest of the class and just come back and take the final. I had another professor, or no, not just not only that, but in his class, a 70 was an A, and a 30 was a C. He had to curve the class because it was that hard. It was a gentleman that was sharp as a sharp, sharp as a tack, even in his 90s. And he'd come in and break down Newtons of fourths and everything else just just off the top of his head. Never cracked open a book, but taught engineering physics. But he said, if you can, a 70 is going to be an A. I already know what the curve is looking like. A 70 is going to be an A. But if you can get a 90, you can skip out class until the final after the third week. If you get a 100, you can just take your A and not even come back for the rest of the semester. I was ready to not have to drive up 290 at 7 in the morning for this class. But guess what? The entire class was staying through the entire semester. Nobody got a 90 after the third week. We had to put in the work. I had another class after I switched from electrical engineering to business management. I took a business management course, and there was a class that we had to take to graduate, uh, and it was only offered at 8 in the morning, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Only one professor taught it, and it was every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for the whole semester at 8 in the morning. And he'd have pop quizzes from 8 o'clock in the morning to 8.05. He did 10 of these pop quizzes from 8 to 8.05, and not only that, those 10 pop quizzes, you never knew when they were coming. And they were weighted to be 30% of your final grade. So if you were late to class, if you liked to sleep in, and you would miss that, that 8 to 8.05 uh, time period, you would have to get 100 on the rest of the midterms and the finals and the research papers and class participation. You'd have to get 100 across all of that if you missed those just to get a 70 in the class. You had 
to put in the work. Amen. I recall taking an algebra class as well. And, 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 and uh, the speech that this professor gave after he went through the syllabus, uh, he spoke about the attendance requirements. Because uh, there were some people that felt like I shouldn't have to come to class if I can get the homework done or ace the midterm in the final. I shouldn't have to spend time in the lecture because I know the material or whatever. And so he would say, nope, nope, nope. We have attendance requirements for this class. You need to be in class if you expect to pass the class. And, 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 and one of the students said, well, we pay your salary we ought to be able to do whatever we want. We pay, we pay tuition, that's your salary. And the professor said he didn't care about that. He said the fact that you paid the money does not exclude you from doing the work. <laughs> he said you can't just go to a tennis coach, pay the tennis coach and say turn me into a professional tennis player. There's going to have to be some work done. You can't go to the Taekwondo master, hand him the cash, and say, give me my black belt. Uh, just because you paid the money does not mean you get everything handed to you. If you wanted to pass this man's class, you were going to have to do the work. Uh, and I thought about all of these things as I was preparing for this message because Jesus is telling the people of God, you are going to have to do some work. Amen. These are Jesus' last words in, in chapter 25 of what we'll call his last discourse. A uh, little something I learned in seminary about it is that the gospel according to Matthew can be divided up into discourses. There were times where Jesus sat down and planted out a whole sermon and gave it to the people and these were called discourses. The first discourse can be found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. That's the, the sermon on the mount and the beatitudes and the Lord's prayer. We get all of that from the, dis, the first discourse. The second discourse is Matthew chapter 10 and he's giving the instructions to the disciples when he tells them to go from city to city and don't take anything with you and if you go to somebody's house and they don't bless you just shake the dust off your feet and keep on going and then we had the third discourse which is in the Matthew chapter 13 and there are parables about the kingdom of heaven when he talks about the kingdom of God being like this and like that and then the fourth discourse is found in Matthew chapter 18 and there's a, that's the, often called the discourse of the church because we hear about lost sheep and unforgiving servants and telling the people how the church should act. Uh, some of the theologians prefer Matthew uh, against all of the other gospels because it's more favorable to the church. Uh, but Matthew and Luke were written actually after Mark. Mark was straight to the point, and Jesus had some words for his disciples when they messed up, but in Matthew and Luke were a little more forgiving, and then John came a little bit after that. And so they call this the discourse of the church, because it talks about going after the lost sheep. And then the fifth discourse is in Matthew chapter 23 through 25, and they call it sometimes the Olivet Discourse, because he gives it on the Mount of Olives. And in this fifth discourse, we, trans we transition from uh, parables and stuff to high drama. The text is clear. You have to do the work. Yes. Uh, it's clear in the text that not only do you have to do the work, that there's going to be some judgment. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. <laughs> Amen. 
didn't put this part in the sermon, but I'm going to have to stop here just for a little bit. You know, we often like to quote that scripture, judge not lest he be judged. We might be taking that a bit out of context. The Bible tells us over and over to judge people, to judge things, to judge the people that were doing the things that we're working with or inspect the fruit. And when he tells them, judge not lest ye be judged, if you read on further, it's talking about that the same manner you are being, you are judging somebody, expect to be judged yourself. So it's not saying don't do it. Just understand that when you point at them, that the things can be pointed back at you. But we ought to be using some judgment. Uh, the text is clear that not only uh, that there's going to be some judgment, but the judgment is going to be swift and decisive. Uh, when you read the parable about the sheep and the goats, he doesn't spend too much time talking, or, or I mean not talking, but he doesn't spend too much time deciding who's going to go what. Nope, line up right here. Sheep on the right hand side, goats on the left. Not too much debate about it. Not too much pomp and circumstance about it. The judgment, there will come a judgment, and it will be swift, and it will be decisive. Uh, and so we have a separator. Let the church say separator. separator. Uh, the Savior himself is playing the position of separator. The Savior himself is playing the position of the separator in the text. Uh, that's kind of hard to deal with. Uh, one, the fact that there's actually going to be some separation. Uh, there's actually going to be some separation. It's not going to be all pie in the sky. It's not going to be skipping through daffodils and everything's going to be, oh, there's going to be a separation. Uh, and not only is there going to be a separation that you got to deal with, the second thing that you got to deal with is that Jesus is the one doing the separating. I know we sell us pie in the sky and love all these and everything's going to be great even though the Bible don't really say that. The Bible says a man born of a woman's days are short and full of trouble. Uh, the Bible says that many are the afflictions of the righteous but the Lord will deliver us from him. So there are some afflictions but the Lord will de deliver them from you. When it says no weapon formed against you shall prosper, somebody had to form the weapon and somebody had to try to use it. Sometimes things are going to be rough. But when we out here trying to sell it to the people, we got the smiles on our face and I'm too blessed to be stressed. And how you doing? I'm blessed and highly favored. And, and that's part of the reason why a lot of people don't want to come to church because we faking it. Life is going to be rough for everybody. But what, the, what makes it better for us is we have something to hold on to. We have something to put our hope in as opposed to just trying to make it on our own. So that's what we need to be holding on to. Understanding that time is going to be rough, but we have something to hold on to. Not that everything's going to be perfect. Not that everything's going to go our way. We just had two months of understanding what happens when stuff don't go our ways. Amen. But the difference is, is we have something to hold on to. We have something to put our help into. And so we, I know we sell this kind of pie in the sky thing, especially when we're trying to get outsiders to come in. We save the fire and brimstone for the people who are already in that we don't like. Ah, but there, it's right there. Jesus is the one telling the people to get on the right and the left. Everybody's getting eternity. 
but where they are spending eternity is different. Uh, Jesus is doing the separating. The third thing uh, that's hard about this text when we got to deal with it, it sounds just like the second thing. I said that the first thing is that there's actually going to be a separation. That's kind of hard to deal with. Second thing that's kind of hard to deal with about this text is that Jesus is the one doing the separating. That's kind of hard to deal with. The third thing that's hard to deal with about this text is the same as the second thing. Jesus is doing the separating. Uh, Jesus is doing the separating, not you and me. Not Big Mama, not Papa, not, not our favorite preacher. Not whatever committees we serve on, not whatever people put letters behind their names. Jesus is doing the separation, which means we don't have a heaven or a hell to put anybody else in. Ah, uh, we, 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 Jesus is doing the separating. So we are in sales, not quality control. I know some of us would like to be in quality control. I know some of us would like to be determining who's going to be locked, marked as the sheep and who's going to be marked at the goat. But I'm pretty sure if they turned it around on you, you would be in the goat pen and they would be in the sheep pen. So Jesus is doing the separating. And so there will be some shocks when we get to heaven. Uh, one shock is that we'll be there. Uh, the other shock is that some of the people we thought wasn't coming are going to be there. And they probably are going to be just as shocked that you in as you are that they in. So there is a separator. And because there is a separator, there will be separation. Let the church say Separation. The goats will be placed on the left and the, uh, the, and the sheep on the right. And there is an assumption here that the people of the, that God, that Jesus is speaking to are some Bible readers and have an understanding of the ancient biblical culture during those times. But the right hand was considered a position of power. It was considered a position of strength. Psalms 118 and 16 says the Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. Uh, Exodus 15 and 6 says, Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand shattered the enemy. When we recite the affirmation of faith, also known as the Apostles' Creed, we talk about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. People in power refer to the person that's the most useful to them, their second in command. They say, that's my right hand man. Uh, there was a... There was a an adage when they would say that that said not to trust left-handed people. Why? Because there were customs during that time that required the right hand. When you greeted somebody in Greece, that handshaking that we do wasn't really a, a, a greeting because I liked you. It was a greeting because I was trying to find out if you had something on you. And so when they grabbed the, the right hand and shook it, they were shaking it to make sure you didn't have an extra sword stuck up under your hand. Because if you had an extra sword stuck under your hand, it would fall out. 
That's why the Greeks, the ancient Greeks did the handshaking. And ancient Romans would grab and then reach up on, they would grab by the forearm. And they were reaching to see if you had extra sword by it. So they would say not to touch, trust rather, a left-handed person. Because the left hand, if they were right-handed and they had the sword in their left hand, you wouldn't have been able to find it. So to be on the right hand of something was good. Uh, Not to get entirely too graphic, but uh, there were cultures that didn't really have some of the the common inventions that we have, uh, such as uh, toilet tissue. And because they didn't have uh, those things, they had their left hand. That's why it's considered disrespect in some cultures to offer your left hand to somebody. You didn't want to be on the left hand of anything. I know some of us might be fond of goats. Some of us like like goats, but in this, this conversation and in this, in this depiction of the scripture, he's separating the sheeps and the goats, and the goats are not what you want to be. The left-hand side is not what you want to be in this parable. And so he's putting them there. And they would have that. And because we have the separation, there are those who are separated. Let the church say separated. Separated. Uh, We have the sheep and the goats. Uh, The sheeps are getting rewarded. The contents of their reward are that they will receive the the Father's kingdom prepared for them before the foundation of the world. Before you even thought of, all of this stuff was laid out for you. You just got to do the right thing to get it. And, and the, the, that was the contents and the cause of what they are doing because they are loving in ministry and feeding and clothing and caring for and even assisting these people. And turns out that they're actually assisting Jesus. There's a cause, there becomes confusion. When were we assisting Jesus? They did all that they asked for, and they did all these things for Jesus. And so we go from the contents, which is the actual receiving of the kingdom and the cause, what they did, and there's confusion about it. When did we do this for Jesus? So Jesus provides some clarification. Uh, By doing it for the least of these, you did it for me. Uh, By doing it for the least of these, they did it for Jesus. And we have the goats with the same thing, their contents. Our eternal punishment. Don't get mad at me. That's what he says in the there. They will say to those on the left, depart from me, for you are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Punishment. I didn't put it there. It's rough to deal with, but it's in the text. Ah, and, and so they get punishment because they did not minister to those in need, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, binding up the wounds of the afflicted. And there's confusion because they say, when? When would you have been around and we not did this for you? And again, he says, if you did this to the least of these. Uh, the says that the, in the text in the NIV, it says brothers and sisters. The NRSV says members of the family, but the implication is clear. Those who are doing what Jesus said to do are in the family. Those who do not are not. Uh, Proverbs 14 and 31 says that he who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker. But he who honors him has mercy to the needy. He who mocks the poor, it says in Proverbs 17 and 5, reproaches his maker. But he who is glad at calamity Uh, uh, will not go unpunished. Proverbs 19 and 17, he who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, 
and he, that's a capital H, he, that's the Lord, will pay back what he has given. Ah, uh, Pastor, you all in the Old Testament. Okay, I got some New Testament for you. If you're going to pick a dilly and, and, and lubies the Bible, I got some New Testament for you. In, seven, in Matthew 7 and 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. I'm going to read that again. Matthew 7 and 21 right now before, if though you're taking notes, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We got to do the work. We got to do the work. You got to be willing to show love to all that you encounter. A couple of weeks back, we talked about the greatest commandment. Jesus was saying to love the Lord with all your might and all your soul and all your mind. And the second commandment is like that, to love your neighbor as yourself. Not kind of like yourself, as yourself. Not as you think so, as yourself. How you treat other people is how you are treating Jesus. Uh, professions of allegiance to the Lord must be matched by deeds. We must be willing to do the work. He talks about feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, binding up the wounds of the afflicted, visiting people in prison. They did that because the thing about it was is during those times you had to be willing to take care of people who are unable to take care of themselves. James says that true religion is an unspotless before God is to take care of the widows and orphans. Why? Because most of the time, if a man wasn't in the house during that time, these people were not able to take care of themselves. And so it became our obligation as Christians, those who followed the way, those who believed in Jesus, to take care of the people around them, to take care of the community. People... Don't come to church based on how that church treats the community. But people leave the church who are already in based on how we treat the community. I've been preaching and working in churches for quite some time now. I thought about it as almost 20 years. But one thing I've noticed is I've seen more people leave behind not willing to check on the community. More people have left because somebody died and nobody said, I'm just calling to let you know I'm praying for you, brother and sister. Nobody's reached out to them and saw how they were doing or they were gone for four or five months and nobody gave them a call. And that's not just on the pastor. All right. There you go. How we treat the least of these. The least of these. We got to do the work. Uh, the Lord said that the harvest is plenty but the laborers are few. 
Uh, yeah, we spend a lot of time talking about harvest, present company included, myself. But I've been learning that harvest is not actually what you think it is. You know, people talk about the harvest and folks get to shouting and dancing and yes, Lord, give me the harvest. But the harvest is when you deal with agriculture is one of the hardest times of the season that there actually is. My wife's grandfather has a garden out in Rosenberg where, well, I guess it's a farm because, you know, you put a garden in your backyard. But this is some land out here. And he gets itchy when it's time for the harvest. We need to get down there. Why? Because the harvest is the most hardest working time anybody that works a farm. The harvest means you got to get out to the fields in a hurry. Because if you don't get out to the fields in a hurry, hurry during harvest time, the bugs can eat your crops. Thieves can steal your crops. Your crops can die on the vine because of too much exposure. Harvest is that time. And you got to spend some time, even when you go to the harvest, picking up and not getting everything you planted. But that doesn't stop you from going to the harvest. You have to get back out there and do it again. And so he talks about it, and the people in the, in the parable, the, the sheep, they saw a need, and they went to address the need. They didn't spend a bunch of time arguing about what the program needs to look like, who should have what title, who should be in what position, and even if they did, I don't see anything about it, I just see sheeps and goats. They didn't try to tell the people what they really needed. They saw the need and they met it. People don't care how much you know, as the adage says, until they know how much you care. In the same manner, when we go out, when we're supposed to be evangelizing, some of these people may not want to hear about the goodness of Jesus until they cover up. They may not be able to hear about the goodness of Jesus either because they only thing they hear is their stomach growling. They'll be dealing with some real issues and we'll have to be able to relate to them and meet the need. There are no titles besides sheep and goats. There are no prerequisites. There are just those who did the work and those who didn't. Churches are dying right now because we've been built on a model of just expecting people to come to church out of obligation. That worked in 1955. That worked really well. But see, what happened is, is those people had children. And see, the model was expected that you come to church, get in church, get married, have children. Your children grow up in the church. They grow up getting married, have children, and your children, and those children's children grow up in the church. But that is not what's happening. What's happening is, is the children may grow up in the church. And for the ones for the 80s and the 90s, they left the church. But then they got about 35, and they had children, and it's like, well, I want my children to experience some of the same stuff I did. And so they came back in the 80s and 90s, and those children grew up and came in the church, but they didn't want that same experience. So they left and they stayed away. And so now we have to go out and get the people. We have to go out and meet the needs. We can't just come in here and act like a club that's exclusive. 
We can't act like a fraternity or a sorority that has decided not to have a line this semester. We have to go out and meet the people and realize that they, some of them may not want to initially hear about this Jesus, but we have to keep trying. Because if we're just going to be a church, and I'm talking about Big C Church overall, not just faith, but if we're just going to be a church where we come and meet for an hour and a half on Sunday, maybe do one or two community service events here or there, what separates us from the United Way? I know I, normally I won't he do it and say yeah and all that, but I didn't feel like that today. We got to do the work. It's very clear. Sheep's on the right hand, goats on the left, and those who don't do the work end up on the left hand side. And so we have that, and then we have the only titles that are given go to Jesus. And in the text, we have the Son of Man, we have the Son of God. We have Christ as king, and we have the shepherd all in one passage. And all of those titles, those are the ones that matter. Not committee chair, not fourth generation member, not the biggest tither, not the one with the most attendance. It's those who do the work and those who don't, and the titles go to Jesus. And the titles go to Jesus because one thing that is overlooked in the text that gives me uh, something to praise about, something else to pray about, praise about rather, is we have Jesus talking about the end before it even happens. Ah, yes, it says when the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels are with him and he'll sit down on his glorious throne. He's still walking and talking amongst the people, but he's here talking about his glory. And when will Christ be set up in his glory? When is Christ going to be seated at the right hand of the Father? When he comes back. Amen. I'm so glad that's not where the story ends. And not, not just that, but that he comes back again. And he's seated in all of his glory. And that is something to be happy about. Because what he's talking about is going to be the result of what goes on on that hill called Calvary. What he's talking about is the work that has to be done when he goes there. He who knew no sins became human and took on all the sins of the world. But here we already see the victory. So Jesus is talking to them not from a position of what's going on now, but he's talking to them from a position of what is there to come. The work has been done. Because the work has been done, your sins and my sins and everybody else's sins have died on that cross. And then not only that, but he got up with all power in his hands. And that is where he is speaking from when he talks about the ability to separate the sheep from the goats. Because he did all the work for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the doors of the church are open and we invite you to come. <laughs>